Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Carol Miller. Quite a while back, James Conant was walking down the street in Washington, D.C. He was on his way to volunteer for the Army. As he headed to the enlistment office, he ran into this guy that he knew. Both of the men were chemists, and when Conant told his colleague where he was going, the colleague, James Norris, was appalled. Norris told him, you could do more for your country by staying here in the U.S. Conant, of course, wanted to be in the action, which is why the idea of joining the Army had appeal. But Norris had a different kind of action in mind. It was 1917, First World War, and Germany, which had some of the best chemists in the world, had already unveiled a series of horrific weapons, worse than anything that anyone had ever seen, like chlorine gas and mustard gas. Norris wanted Conant to fight back, but with chemistry. For Conant, this was the first of two wars in which he would be consumed with and worried by the science of killing. He would also go on to help run the Manhattan Project, the quest for an atomic bomb during World War II. The project famously prompted physicist Robert Oppenheimer to cite this line from Hindu scripture, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. When they saw that enormous fireball go up into the sky and they realized that they had achieved the impossible, that they had built this terrifying new weapon, they understood, really the physicists understood right then, what a revolutionary, horrifying, devastating weapon they had unleashed and how the world would never be the same. That's Jeanette Conant, the author of Robert Oppenheimer and the Secret City of Los Alamos. Yes, they were relieved that 27 months of unmitigating around-the-clock labor had yielded this weapon, and, and then there was nothing but fear and dread of what this meant for the world. Conan has written extensively about crafting some of the deadliest weapons the world has ever seen and what it's meant to the people who made them or pushed for them, people like Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein and her grandfather, James Conant, who she writes about in her most recent book, Man of the Hour. In fact, when Jeanette was growing up, what her grandfather had unleashed seemed ubiquitous and incredibly scary. I mean, I grew up in Cambridge during the Vietnam War, so war wasn't some distant theoretical thing. You know, there were protests in the streets, all the windows in Harvard Square were smashed in and covered with plywood. You know, it was the burning issue of the day, and we would see images of Vietnamese villages being torched. And my father, who was very liberal and the angry son of a great man, would say things like, well, that's napalm, which your grandfather and the Harvard scientists invented, and he's a mass murderer. Hmm. So I saw that side of it, where people um, by the 60s saw weapons of mass destruction as means of mass murder. On the other hand, I you know, sat with my grandfather and his colleagues who felt that they had built this weapon to end a war that had gone on for years and years. Right. World War II claimed 50 million lives, mm -hmm. and they felt that it was um, necessary to sacrifice two cities, 140,000 people, 
to bring the war to a quick and decisive end, that it was the lesser of two evils. Um, it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't a decision that anyone took lightly. But they felt at the time that it was absolutely the thing that they had to do to finally bring this horrible war to an end. So I saw both sides of the issue. And the tension um, is something that is so present that it continues to be a yeah. uh, subject of fierce debate today. And by the way, did your grandfather ever hear the kind of things that your father said about napalm and like... Oh, yeah. Every Thanksgiving and Christmas, yes, it was the major battle of the dinner table. Wow. That's not your typical Thanksgiving or Christmas discussion. Uh, no, it discussion. was an open wound, yes, yes. open wound in my family. Um, but it was, you know, in some sense uh, for the country. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to your grandfather. I talked about the story of him, like, walking down the street. He's going to the enlistment office. Was he hesitant at first? Because he did end up, you know, I, I talked about him running into this friend of his who was a chemist, and he did work on these poison gases. Was he hesitant at first to do that? How did he feel about that? Very much so. You know, he was um, an academic chemist. He thought of himself as becoming a professor and working safely in some little squirrely laboratory somewhere. Um, he was raised by a Quaker mother, and in fact had been bitterly opposed to World War I, even when all of his friends um, joined, you know, the great patriotic zeal, uh, ran off to uh, help the Allies and joined ambulance corps and uh, uh, volunteered. He was bitterly opposed to hmm. World War I. He hmm. didn't see the point of World War I and didn't want to be involved. And selfishly, he didn't win want to interrupt his academic uh, career. But when uh, we finally joined in 1917, he had no choice. Everybody was enlisting. And he was on his way to his enlist when he got sort of uh, recruited into the Chemical Warfare Service. Uh, he hated it. Um, he, and in letters home, he described it as trying to beat the devil at his own game, you know, making these terrible, toxic, asphyxiating gases. But people need to remember that in wartime, it's a race for survival. And uh, sort of troubling moral issues get pushed aside when men are being slaughtered in huge numbers. His friends were dying at the front, and he was told that if he helped develop these gases, they could retaliate, they could push the Germans back. And American boys were just arriving in France and being gassed to death. And so hmm. it was a very pressing, urgent matter that we uh, try and develop chemical weapons that we could use to retaliate against the Germans. Yeah. And, and talk a, a little bit about how good the Germans were in terms of chemistry and in terms of developing these gases. Because when you read the descriptions of the gases being unleashed and like literally thousands of French people dying at a time uh, from gas, I mean, not they were not being shot. Right. That's not what was happening. These were incredibly effective. It was a devious and diabolical weapon gas. World War I, if you remember, was trench warfare. So right. it had been this bloody war of attrition that had ground on for years and years with the French and the, and the allies opposite the Germans uh, in trenches where they dug in and holed up for months. And then every now and then the, the officers would call a charge and they would go above ground and be mowed down. And this, you know, they gained a foot, they lost a foot, mm -hmm. and this went on and on in terrible fashion for months. 
So the Germans developed gas, and the whole point of poison gas was that you could launch it into the opposing forces' trenches, and the poison gas would settle into the trenches and drive these coughing, mm-hmm. uh, dying soldiers out of the trenches into the open where they could be shot. They started with chlorine gas, and they moved on to phosgene gas, and they were making these more and more poisonous death clouds that would just float over the opposing army. Of course, we know the Germans became masterful at gas. They mm-hmm. would then invent um, sarin and tabun gas in World War II, which they used to exterminate millions of Jews. So the German chemists were so far in advance mm-hmm. of the American chemists. I mean, really, American chemistry was at their early stages compared to European chemistry. In fact, all the great American chemists studied in Germany under these great gods of chemistry, the German scientists. So they were way, way ahead in we spent all of World War I playing catch-up. So your grandfather, at the time that World War I ended, was working on this really deadly uh, gas called lewisite, which never, I think, got used because the war ended too you know, quickly for it to get used. And then sort of amazingly, despite, as you say, like he didn't really like what he was doing, he didn't really want to be making deadly weapons— Again, when World War II came along, he got pulled into the sort of group of scientists and the scientific project to um, make ever deadlier weapons. How did that happen again? It was the crime of experience. Uh, my grandfather was appalled by the weapons work he'd been pulled into in World War One. He turned his back on it. The minute the war was over, he had, you know, dozens of, of very high-paying, lucrative offers to go into industry to continue in the chemical warfare service. He wanted mm. no part of it. Mm. He went back into academics. He, in fact, became president of Harvard University. But he'd had that wartime experience. And so as World War II, you know, swept Europe and the uh, German uh, Nazi troops blitzed their way across one democracy after another, and he saw, you know, free speech and democracies fall to the Wehrmacht, he realized that there was no way America could stand by. He realized we would inevitably have to fight for freedom in Europe. He became such a leading spokesman that, of course, he became very much to um, President Roosevelt's attention. Roosevelt needed all the help he could get. He privately wanted to intervene, but America was isolationist overwhelmingly. And so my grandfather helped guide the interventionist movement and urge America into war. So the minute we found ourselves at war, it made sense, of course, that as a scientist who had developed weapons in World War I, who had all this experience, who had been so prescient in the 1930s about the fact that America would once again need to come to uh, England's aid and defend itself, that he would become appointed as one of the leaders of the Manhattan Project, this huge um, effort to organize um, scientists and technology for war. You know, you've written about a lot of people who were involved in the Manhattan Project, including, of course, Robert Oppenheimer. How do you think that he and, you know, he was surrounded by all these physicists and all these incredibly smart people who'd been assembled at Los Alamos to do these tests to figure out could they come up with an atomic bomb? How did they feel about what they were doing? Was it hard to recruit scientists to come uh, to Los Alamos to do these tests and to try to figure it out? Uh, Well, that's a complicated question, and and there's sort of various ways to answer it. The first question is, was it difficult um, to recruit scientists to work on the bomb? Um, 
not because of moral reservations they had about the bomb, only because they didn't think the bomb would work, and they wanted to work on weapons they thought would work. A lot of the top refugee scientists and American scientists were working on radar, a proven weapon hmm. where you could, uh, you know, isolate uh, U-2 boats hmm. under the cover of fog and, and German uh, airplanes uh, by night and shoot them out of the sky and destroy railroads and bridges. Um, radar was the weapon that was winning and would win the European war. And all the refugee scientists wanted to work on radar, not mm. some futuristic right. theoretical bomb that might right. not be done in time. So there weren't moral objections. I mean, okay. people always think, why didn't they have moral objections? Remember, um, American boys were dying in the thousands. People saw this as trying to defeat the worst despot, the worst evil they had ever seen in the form of Hitler. So it was a race against time. And again, uh, when you're in the weapons business, as all scientists were at that point, building proximity fuses and torpedoes, they weren't worried about the moral niceties of the bomb. That would come much later. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jeanette Conant about scientists and their wartime inventions. She's the author, most recently, of Man of the Hour, James B. Conant, Warrior Scientist. Uh, it's in, you describe this moment where they're testing the bomb, which they called Fat Man, right? Yeah. And, like, you've got these incredible scientists sort of cowering because they're, you know, the bomb is going off. They're kind of trying to watch it, but kind of trying to protect their eyes and themselves and so on. And as the bomb goes off and they see sort of different aspects of the explosion, they people are saying, like, oh, wow, that piece of it did work. I never, like... You know, I didn't realize that. You know, you realize this is such a big thing, and yet it is also their little experiment at the same time. Yeah, so they have two or three sides of their brain. There's the technical side of the right. brain that is registering the level of the explosion, right. the height of the mushroom cloud. They're looking at the debris, the fallout, um, the plumes. They're thinking, oh, I feel the aftershock, you know, the blast of warm mm -hmm. air in their face a few seconds later. They're immediately calculating what that means. So they have the technical side of their brain. And then there's the emotional side of them. You know, my grandfather said that when the whole sky turned turned white for a second because of the blinding light. For a split second, he thought that it had all gone wrong and this thermonuclear explosion that Edward Teller had raised the possibility of in a discussion months earlier and that Hans Bethe had ruled out as not likely had happened hmm. and that, in fact, it was going to be the end of the world. So for one second, he felt that blip of terror. So you, you can see the way their minds were racing. Right. Now, interestingly, between this test going well in some ways, it worked, and before the bomb was dropped on Japan, there were scientists who were not sure that Truman should do it, that he should drop this bomb. People had created this, but then when they saw the potential reality, you know, up until then it was academic, and then reality was sort of in front of them, they weren't sure that the president should do it. Yes. And remember, uh, you know, two things, what you just uh, explained exactly, had it been really a theoretical discussion, now it was real. Yeah, now, right. undeniably, there was going to be a weapon ready to use. So suddenly the urgency of the moral issues came back in force. Oh, my God, uh, what have we done? A lot of scientists started asking themselves. But complicating that greatly, exacerbating their anguish was the fact that um, this test, the Trinity test in July 1945, you know, the European war was over. 
Hoover. So they had worked all this time to defeat Hitler, an undeniable evil. And now General Groves came to Los Alamos and said, don't stop. You are going to continue to work seven days a week because we're going to drop this on Japan. Now, for many of the scientists, particularly the, the, the many, many brilliant um, Jewish refugee scientists who had families in concentration camps, who had lost hundreds of family members, you know, they had built this weapon to stop Hitler. They had not the same um, feeling about Japan. They didn't know what they felt about that. And they were suddenly filled with questions, with qualms. You know, is this the right thing to do? They're scientists. They're not military strategists. And suddenly they started to say, wait a minute. We're, we made this weapon. We want to say this is our weapon. We created it. We're responsible for how it should be used and controlled, they also right away saw a third um, issue, that this weapon was so powerful that whoever had it, you know, would essentially rule the world. They knew as scientists that they could not hold the secret. This was a secret of nature, essentially, that had been broken out and examined and exposed to the world, and that, that everybody would have this secret cracked in a couple of years, and that other leaders would have the bomb. So that right away they saw that an arms race could develop, that this bomb had to be controlled. And so right away you had scientists, Leo Zillard, all the scientists, University of Chicago laboratories, protesting, writing letters to General Groves, to the president, saying, wait a minute, we want to be heard. We want to have a say in whether or not this bomb is ever used or how it's used. And their perhaps naivete was that even though they had created this bomb, they were not going to have a say. Mm -hmm. The bomb project had been given to the military. It was the military's decision um, how to use it and when to use it. And as much as they would yell and protest and sign petitions, it was too late. It was out of their hands. And many of the scientists uh, never, never forgave themselves for their naivete in handing it over to the military early on and not realizing the consequences of that decision. So let's talk about the vision that I know like Oppenheimer worried. He kind of foresaw the arms race that you talked about, but maybe even a world of suitcase bombs. Like, this world didn't exist, but these people were smart enough and understood the science well enough that they worried that, as you said, that the world was going to enter this new era, this incredibly scary era where maybe, you know, bombs could be anywhere and it was hard to know who would control them. I think that's, to me, one of the, the biggest revelations of the book is when you when you see what the scientists were warning, Niels Bohr, Robert Oppenheimer, they were fully aware of the danger even before the first bombs were completed. They were warning um, the political leaders, the president, that these weapons would proliferate, that these weapons could be um, put in suitcases, they could be transportable, it could fall into the hands of terrorists. All the nightmare mm -hmm. scenarios that haunted them in 44, 
in yeah. 45. Yeah. Uh, and they started talking about publicly um, after the war in 46. They foresaw all of the situations that we face today. It's not like we got here by accident and this nuclear showdown with North Korea was some unanticipated mm-hmm. scenario that couldn't be helped. Right, no, right. they foresaw it in detail. They warned against precisely this kind of nuclear showdown, but they just could not bring everybody to the negotiating table. Um, Are there lessons that you think we should take away? I mean, you've been getting out a little bit, but from these military innovators who you, you know, spent so much time with and thinking about and writing about that might teach us something about the world today? Well, I think the most immediate uh, lesson and the most applicable, I think, from my book is that all of these scientists that built the bomb, that had a hand in how it should be used in the bombing of Japan, they would all say, I think, that nuclear weapons were so terrible that once demonstrated to the world, once everyone could see how dreadful they were, they should never be used again. I mean, we, we currently have a president who, who sort of speaks glibly of using them again. These are weapons that should never be used again. We should never leave the bargaining table. We should never stop negotiating with an eye to preventing the use of these weapons again. So I would say that's the first lesson um, that an Oppenheimer um, opponent of Bush um, would urge on today's leaders. Jeanette Conant is the author of several books about the intersection of war and science. Her most recent is Man of the Hour, James B. Conant, warrior, scientist. Jeanette, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Here's a footnote to this story that probably is not going to surprise you. After the war, James Conant went to Moscow hoping to convince the world's other major superpower that nuclear weapons could not be allowed to proliferate. Many experts worried that the Soviet Union was going to have the bomb in just 10 or 15 years. But Stalin was not interested in talking. What Conant didn't know was that, according to his granddaughter, Stalin had spies working with Oppenheimer in Los Alamos. In under five years, not the 10 or 15 that the experts predicted, the USSR had developed a nuclear weapon. 